and welcome to Flash Forward. I'm Rose and I'm your host. Flash Forward is a show about the future. Every episode we take on a specific possible or not so possible future scenario. We always start with a little field trip to the future to check out what's going on and then we teleport back to today to talk to experts about how the world we just heard might really go down. That's how we normally do it. This episode is going to be a little bit different. As many of you know, Flash Forward is my second job. My first job is at ESPN, where I recently helped launch an audio documentary series called 30 for 30 Podcasts. Please do go check that out, even if you don't like sports. I promise that there is something for you. My episodes are numbers three and four in the series. They're both out. You can listen to them. And if you like the weird stuff that I do on this show, I think you'll probably enjoy them. But trying to make two highly produced shows at once is really hard. So for my mental health, this month's Flash Forward is a little bit of a remix. The top of this episode is new. It's an interview with Kit Walsh, who's a staff attorney at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, where she works on free speech, net neutrality, copyright, coders' rights, and other issues that relate to freedom of expression and access to knowledge, mostly on the internet. Then you'll hear a remixed version of an old episode about the future of the internet and what it would take for us to abandon the World Wide Web. So it's a little bit of new, it's a little bit of old, and it lets me focus my time on the next couple of episodes of this show, which are shaping up to be really amazing. Okay, so that's what's about to happen. Are you ready? Great. So let's go first to my interview with Kit. Can you just sort of give me your name and title and sort of how you would want to be identified? I'm Kit Walsh. I am a staff attorney at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And for those who don't know what the Electronic Frontier Foundation is, what do you do? So the Electronic Frontier Foundation is a member-supported nonprofit that's dedicated to protecting your civil liberties in the context of new technologies. So we want to make sure that as we all go together into the future, that new technologies are deployed in a way that supports your personal freedoms rather than reducing them. I called Kit because I wanted to update this episode about the future of the internet with a little bit of information about something called net neutrality. You have probably heard the words net neutrality before. It bubbles up in the news, and a lot of sites and internet-based companies have launched campaigns to rally people to defend net neutrality. But what actually is net neutrality? Let's stop and define it for a second. Net neutrality is the idea that the company that gives you access to the internet shouldn't be able to discriminate with respect to the information that you send and receive over your internet connection. The key thing to know is basically that you get your internet from an internet service provider, or ISP. Maybe it's Comcast, maybe it's Verizon, but they provide internet to you. And right now, they are obligated to keep that internet service neutral. But that could change. If we lose net neutrality, you lose that neutrality of the way the internet service is provided. So here is my favorite way of describing net neutrality, which comes from someone named Kate Forsey, who works at an organization called Public Knowledge. It's also kind of an adaptive version of an explanation that former Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia used back in 2005. So let's say that you live in a town that has two pizza places, a Domino's and a Papa John's. And your town also only has one phone company. Let's say that that's AT&T. It's Friday night, you're tired, and there's nothing in the fridge, so you decide you want to order a pizza. Now, if this were today's world, you would just call up whichever pizza place you like best. Maybe you're a Domino's person, or maybe Peyton Manning has convinced you to love Papa John's. Either way, you know that you can call either one of them and get a pizza. 
But imagine that the phone company, AT&T, has cut a special deal with Domino's so that all calls going through the AT&T network for Domino's get priority over the ones going to Papa John's. So anybody who wants to order from Papa John's has to wait until everybody calling Domino's gets connected. Well, eventually, you're probably going to stop trying to order from Papa John's, right? You know that you're going to actually get pizza from Domino's much faster instead of waiting forever to connect to someone at Papa John's once all of the Domino's calls have gone through. Eventually, it might even be that Papa John's goes out of business because everybody knows that they're going to have to wait much longer to get a pizza from them. This is the basic premise of net neutrality, except instead of pizza, we're talking about information and sites on the internet. Healthcare sites, news sites, government sites, shopping sites. With net neutrality, internet service providers can't cut a deal with certain sites or companies to make internet traffic move faster to those sites and slower to others. Without net neutrality, you might have to wait a lot longer to access, say, Netflix compared to Hulu if Hulu cuts a better deal with the internet service provider. So, for example, if you want to go and watch your videos on a website that competes with Comcast's own streaming service, they shouldn't be allowed to throttle or block your access to that website. They shouldn't be allowed to hold access to you hostage in order to extract toll payments from that other service provider. You're paying them to provide you with a conduit for information, and that's what they should be providing. So the reason that people are fighting over net neutrality right now is because the companies that provide internet service would like to be able to block, throttle, discriminate with respect to the content that you are able to send and receive. And in fact, they've already done so in some cases in violation of net neutrality rules, in other cases, places where net neutrality rules don't quite reach. Um, and so those practices include things like threatening to throttle Netflix and ne unless Netflix paid up, all the way to uh, blocking Planned Parenthood messages over text networks, or blocking access to a website where uh, workers were trying to organize in a union uh, in action against a telecom provider. The fight for net neutrality has been going on for a long time, mostly centered around the Federal Communications Commission, or the FCC. In practice, if you go back to the very early days of the internet with dial-up, it wasn't the case that one company was able to control your access to the internet because you could dial up and connect to whatever internet provider you wanted around the country uh, over your phone line. And the phone line was required to act as a neutral conduit. Uh, and over the past 10 years, with the rise of broadband technologies where your internet comes over cable or fiber, the um, Federal Communications Commission has proposed a series of net neutrality orders and the internet companies have fought back against each one of them. So there's been this 10-year dialogue with the courts where the agency, the companies, the courts are figuring out uh, how enforceable net neutrality rules can be applied in order to protect freedom of speech and competition online. It's only within the past year, in 2016, that the FCC's action was finally upheld so now we have clear, enforceable rules that protect people from suffering discrimination at the hands of their internet companies. And that's the rule that's in danger of being repealed if the FCC goes forward with the plan that it suggested. 
this is one of those issues that is kind of lopsided when it comes to who supports which side. So overwhelmingly, the polling shows that ordinary people from across the political spectrum favor net neutrality and favor rules that effectively give us net neutrality. Um, We've had as well millions of people writing into the FCC. We're now at over 12 million comments in this latest rulemaking, which is by far a record breaker. Basically, internet users like you and me don't really stand to win anything at all if net neutrality agreements are rolled back, especially if we don't have a ton of money or if we want to start a small business, like, say, an indie podcast about the future. Net neutrality is something that's really important for individuals, for nonprofits, and for small businesses, startups trying to enter the market to compete. In a world without net neutrality, the Googles, the Facebooks, the Netflixes of the world could afford to pay off the ISPs for access, and they might run into some trouble when the ISP has a competing service, so they want you to watch Verizon video instead of going to YouTube. But for the most part, those big companies are not the ones that I'm worried about. I'm worried about the next YouTube that wants to come along, the next Twitter, people who don't have the money to pay off ISPs for access to customers who currently can just show up on the internet and compete. And if they have a better service, they can thrive. But in a world without net neutrality, they would get locked out. To me, the scariest thing about losing net neutrality is that we could wind up with an internet where, depending on the administration and the politics of the internet service providers, some content on the internet is effectively gone. So if you want to get information about where to have an abortion or information about protests and political actions, those sites might simply never load. Or if you're a queer or trans person and want information or access to an online community of peers, You might not be able to find it if your internet service provider decides that it doesn't want to provide that kind of content. So when you type in, you go and request Netflix, Twitter, your church, your political organization, Planned Parenthood, it sends a request through your provider to go and fetch that information. And so they're going to start saying, hey, Netflix, Planned Parenthood, whatever, If you want timely access to people who are our subscribers, you might want to pay up. It's a little bit like protection money. And if you don't pay up, then it might be slower. You might find that it's unreliable. And this is something that Comcast did with Netflix and basically degraded Netflix performance until Netflix paid up. So that's something that I would expect you'd start to see. You might see the companies are going to start making decisions about what content is going to be allowed on their networks. I recall there was a brief time when Verizon ran a news service and they said, you're not allowed to talk about NSA mass surveillance or about net neutrality. Uh, so it's, it's the companies that potentially would be making decisions about content in a world where we don't have net neutrality are not neutral, they're not populist, they have specific viewpoints that they could, in that dark future, use their gatekeeper power to enforce, to keep people from getting access to information that they need, to keep people from expressing views that are contrary to the interests of the companies. So you mentioned the 12 million comments, sort of like, can you describe 
sorry. I don't know if you could hear that. My dog is like protesting the fact that she is not allowed to go chase a squirrel that's outside right now. You mentioned the 12 million comments. Can you kind of describe for people like right now, 2017, like where is net neutrality? What What's going to happen in the next six months? Like, where are we? So right now, we have rules that protect net neutrality. These are rules that uh, we and Team Internet fought for in 2015. We were able to get them. We got the FCC to do the right thing. And then the, the Internet companies sued. They said the rules were improper, but they were finally upheld in court. So finally, in 2016, we had good, enforceable net neutrality rules. What changed is the presidency. So the FCC is uh, an agency with five commissioners and three are appointed from the party of the president and two are from the minority party, which means that control of the agency changes when the president changes. So under President Trump, one of the commissioners who has long been an opponent of net neutrality was elevated to the chair position um, with a majority that allows him to advance his agenda, which included a rollback of uh, a variety of protections for prisoners. We've seen a rollback of privacy protections that actually came out of Congress. And now we are seeing a rollback of uh, net neutrality rules. So we are in that process. In order to change the rules, the FCC has to go through a regulatory process that allows for public comment. So we are in the public comment period. And now through mid-August, we continue to have the opportunity to submit comments in reply to those things. And then the FCC will go and it will consider everything that it's been said. And it has to issue a final rule at that point or not. It can decide actually we're not going to change anything. Um, but so some number of weeks or months after that August 16th deadline for comments, we'll see the FCC do what it's going to do. And so that could mean they strip away all net neutrality protections. You know, one of the commissioners has been very enthusiastic at allowing pay to play fast lands on the internet. Uh, so that could be what happens. If that happens, then you can expect the public interest groups to mount a legal challenge to the way that that's done. So this is a process that's going to keep playing on for some time. Just to, I mean, if you'll indulge me for a moment to go into sort of speculation land. Um, I mean, let's say we lose net neutrality. Uh, what is that future like? Yeah, so the first thing that I think people are likely to notice is for those internet providers that have their own commercial video systems or other media systems, they are likely to start pushing those systems over competitors. And so that might look like uh, a tiered plan where you have to pay extra for non-throttled service to, uh, to YouTube or to Netflix when because the company wants you to go to their video streaming service. Then you'll start seeing things like paid prioritization generally. Paid prioritization is the idea that the ISP, the internet service provider, can act as a gatekeeper for other 
people on the internet to reach you. So I think you'll see a clumsy blocking. It's going to target um, stuff that at first is not too controversial um, and could expand to encompass a lot of things that potentially involve copyrighted works but are permitted fair uses like parodies. Um, it might restrict access to uh, information about uh, sexual orientation, gender identity, medical care. A lot of block lists that are deployed in schools and libraries are really over-inclusive. We've seen uh, YouTube screwed up and was blocking a lot of queer content as uh, inappropriate for minors. Uh, so I think the, the free wheeling open internet that's weird and interesting and has the information you need is going to start to get patchier stuff is going to be blocked either intentionally or by accident that's the future without net neutrality and is that something that like people will notice i guess like i can if i'm optimistic i'm like no one will stand for that right like people want to be able to google their weird thing whether whatever their weird thing is everyone has their weird thing and they want to be able to google it or search for it or whatever it is but i can also imagine a world where people don't realize it's happening and i think that was the case in a lot of situations with like youtube i think people who are savvy and clued in knew but like if i'm a queer teenager in alabama like i don't necessarily know that I'm not getting it. I just search and it's not there. And I think, oh my God, I, I must be totally messed up. You know, like I feel like you, you end up sending a signal in a way that maybe people don't realize. Do you feel like if this were to happen, people would notice it or would does it would it be more subtle and people would think like, oh, well, maybe this just doesn't exist. Maybe this content just isn't out there. Yeah, I think a lot of it would be very subtle and very hard to detect. We have been involved in some of the technical analyses just to figure out that uh, T-Mobile has been throttling certain content or Verizon has been throttling. Uh, we discovered that Comcast was blocking BitTorrent because when you run into a problem on the internet, there are a lot of things that could have gone wrong from your computer to the other computer that you're communicating with. So it's really not easy to figure out when something is a result of an intentional act of discrimination by your internet provider versus the quirks of the network. So you're totally right to point out that it's going to be hard to detect a lot of these non-neutral practices. I mean, I think down for everyone or just me is like my most visited website where I'm like, is it me or is like this just my like internet not working? Do you feel like, I mean, it's kind of uh, an intense time in politics right now to put it lightly. Mm -hmm. um, do you ever feel like net neutrality gets lost in some of the other uh, things that are happening? I feel like every two seconds I get some sort of alert on my phone with like something <laughs> going on that I like is very important and like I should care about. Do you ever feel like this gets gets lost? I feel like there are absolutely weeks where people are in the streets, people are engaged in actions around uh, immigration or other issues that they care about uh, and paying less attention to net neutrality. And my attitude during those weeks is this is why we fight to protect net neutrality. This is why we fight for your ability to organize online, to speak out. And I want you to use that freedom. I want you to be vocal, organize, mobilize for whatever cause you care about. And then you, when that quiets down a little bit, come help out with net neutrality so that the next time you need that freedom, it's still there for you. 
If you want to let the FCC know how you feel about net neutrality, you can go to DearFCC.org, which is a site run by the EFF where Kit works that helps make it really easy to tell the FCC that you want net neutrality to stick around. If you want to learn more about net neutrality in general, I will post a bunch of links on FlashForwardPod.com as well. Okay, so in a second, we're going to travel to the future and try to figure out what it would take to lose the internet. But first, a quick word from this month's sponsors. Okay, are you ready to go to the future? Let's do it. And just as a disclaimer, this episode is from 2015, and it is only the seventh episode of Flash Forward that I had ever made. So uh, my narration might sound a little different. And if there are any topical jokes from 2015, let's just pretend they're still relevant. Great. Thanks. Let's start in the year 2032. Um, this is, this is kind of weird, but, um, did your internet just go out? Uh, let me check. Um, yeah, I think so. Um, I'm going to go reboot the router, okay? Okay. Maybe that's it. Mm. Hey. Hey, what's up? Okay. Um, I have a question for you. Is your internet working? But... Yeah, no, I, it's not. Uh, and I can't figure out why. No one in my office yeah, seems to yeah, be able to get it working. And I thought it was just me, but clearly not. Yeah, uh, like, that's, that's so weird. My, um, you. Is your my internet down? Either, and I have yes, been trying, like, all morning to really get it good. Yeah, yeah, I'll let you know if I figure no, it out. No, I mean, like, it went out, and I just don't everything and read it. Okay, well, okay. My internet is not working, and nobody can get anything. I wanted to check with you. Is your internet working? Yeah. Oh, my God, no. Let me call my parents and see if it's still down over there. And I thought it was just me. I... I have no connection. Yeah, let me know. Yeah, okay. I've called a bunch of people okay. in New York, and it's not working at all. And so it's not working for you. Let me call someone, like, out in California and see if they can get it to work. Okay, bye. Bye. Hello? Hi, Mom. Hey, what's up? Um, not much. I have a question for you. Um, can you okay. Is, is your internet working out there? You know what? I'm not, I'm not out of my internet. I was just in the other room. Let me go check for you. Okay, thanks. Are you going? Are you having problems with yours? Yeah, uh, I can't get it to work, and um, I've called a bunch of people in New York, and they uh-huh. also can't get it to work. So I figured I would call someone not in New York, and you're not in New York, so huh. I'm calling you. Okay, hold on, give me a minute. No. No. Um, I'm not getting. Safari's not responding, so the let me check mail. No, I'm not getting anything. Okay. All right. Um, oh. I need to make a couple other phone calls. I'll call you later and we can talk more, but um, I just need to yeah. figure this out. So um, I will okay. call you back soon. Okay. Oh, that's going to be a pain for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Oh, okay. Okay. You run away and do your job. Talk to you later. All right. Bye. Bye. Okay. So something has happened and we've lost the internet. Normally, what would happen next on this podcast is that I would talk to some experts and we would work through what would happen next. What would the world look like without the internet? How would our financial systems fare? What would happen to emergency management efforts or international shipping industries? This week, we're going to do things a little bit differently. I really wanted to think about a future without the internet. 
But as I was talking to people about it, it became clear that what's most interesting about a future without the internet isn't what happens next, but how it happens in the first place. So this week, we're going to spend most of the episode working backwards, figuring out what would need to happen for us to lose the internet. Now, I'm a firm believer that the best predictors of the future are historians, so I talked to two of them. The pain of the internet is the pain of, like, the constant confrontation with other people, right? I mean, it's bad enough that you live in New York City and you're surrounded by, like, millions and millions and millions of people who care not at all about your existence. Uh, the internet is like that, right, in your office, you know, just just this kind of constant assailment of other human beings and the idea that we could just, like, shut it is really pleasurable. That's Lane Nooney, and this is Finn Brunton. It's so it's so funny, by the way, we're having this conversation at this exact moment. I don't know if you can hear it. Over, is it a uh, bell? Uh, yeah, yeah, but no, the bell is tolling noon, but it sounds very, like, it really captures this kind of, you know, post-internet, quasi-medieval, kind of like, we have to alert everyone as to what the time is so they can set their clock. Both Nooney and Brunton are historians of digital culture at NYU. And when I talked to them about this, they both pointed out that losing the internet is a really hard thing to imagine. The enormity to which you have to propel this kind of fantasy really speaks to how hard it is to think about the world without the internet, right? Because we, and then it brings up this question of like, what is, like, what is the thing that the internet is? Your, 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 your Twitter account and your Facebook page and your Tumblr account are all like really, in some ways, very insignificant parts of the internet, even though what has born out of them are these really rich and nuanced and complex forms of personal culture. The internet is basically just, it's, it's a, it's a set of protocols that govern the, the transmission and the reception of data. So how do you take down something that doesn't have a central location? The context would have to be such an extreme change in our present circumstances that it would probably have a very dramatic effect on whatever that experience was like. Um, and I, I, uh, if this is okay, uh, I actually put together like some different sort of scenarios. Yes, that's amazing. Um, I, had, I had a lot of time to think about this while I was driving around. Um, <laughs> so we're going to run through five of Nooney and Brunton's internet-killing ideas right now. Ready? Great. Number one. This one is in some ways the most boring. It's a full-on apocalypse. Maybe a huge solar flare or an asteroid hits the Earth. We lose all electricity. All our satellites fall out of the sky. All the volcanoes in the world erupt at once. Whatever it is, it's a big deal. But it also means that Maybe we won't care that much about losing the internet in that moment because we will all be dying. Something where, where our daily lives would be so unrecognizable that it would be hard to like subtract out the, the parts where we could kind of imagine the consequences of the internet being gone. This is also the first way that Nooney saw the internet being lost. Like I was really trying to imagine like what's the scenario in which we lose that, right? Because often when we imagine the internet going away, it is coupled with an apocalypse narrative, right? Because we link it to the idea of the loss of electricity, right? This, this is how our, uh, all of our like dystopian fantasies always wind up working. Okay, number one, apocalypse. Kind of boring. So let's get to number two. An electromagnetic pulse. EMP goes off and right, it wipes you know, every hard drive everywhere. There are ways that you could conceivably um, detonate a nuclear device outside of the Earth's atmosphere such that you would only get the effect of this sudden massive electromagnetic pulse, which would effectively uh, kill all uh, unshielded electronics. But even in that case, it's not like the Internet goes away. Instead, it's like one specific local region. So if an 
EMP goes off, it probably wouldn't impact the whole world. And again, we're probably in the midst of some nuclear war, so we maybe have other things to worry about. So both number one and number two are situations in which the internet is lost due to a huge, crazy, global, very bad event. But what if the internet wasn't lost as a side effect of some war or some horrible catastrophe? So, so what I would like to propose instead is some, some really hypothetical thing. But a thing that I have to confess personally, I find weirdly plausible, which is what would be some context in which we would shut the system down ourselves, you know, as, as a public service, as a matter of duty or survival, we would be yanking the cables out of the walls, you know, and firebombing the, uh, the switching centers and the, the uh, colo rooms and all the rest of it. People would go and like dynamite the landing stations where the fiber optic cables actually come into shore. And all of a sudden we have pretty much our existing society, but no internet. So the last three scenarios are situations in which we, as humans, decide that we have to shut off the Internet. I know it sounds crazy, but bear with me. Here's scenario number three. A super virus. I mean, I I like the idea that someone creates some sort of, like, protocol virus and then, like, protocol stops. And I don't even know if that's possible. But, like, suddenly none of them can talk to each other, right, like, across the globe. Um, And then you you still have all the terminals, you still have all the data, but you, you can't send or receive, right, without, like, a direct connection, right? So do people, like, move all the computers into the same room and, like, you know, daisy chain them together in order to get them to work? And we actually have some practice for this. Like in 1988, there was a worm that actually effectively kind of killed what was sort of turning into the internet for a little while in the sense that the systems administrators who were infected with it were like pulling their whole local networks offline to try to figure out what to do and, and all the rest of it. But this, the, the network now is so complex that it's very hard to imagine a single program that could, or even a family of programs, however well put together, that could, you know, simultaneously damage the networking capabilities of individual computers, but also destroy servers and sort of destroy the infrastructure in various ways that can't be recovered from. So if there's some kind of horrible worm that infiltrates the transfer protocol, hopping from server to server and device to device, wreaking havoc, we might decide to pull it all offline until we can figure it out. And if we take that scenario a little bit further, we get to idea number four. Some form of a singularity phenomenon. Um, and again, like we're, you know, we're out in a little bit in space pirates territory, but you can imagine something in which we essentially create some form of autonomous, fundamentally inimical, uh, and extremely capable system that can live on our infrastructure, that can live in inside of, uh, you know, the world of networked computers, and that actively wishes us ill. You know, you can, you can just sort of think of all the classic movie tropes about this, but it's something where we can imagine a situation where, for example, there might be some way in which it can use the the properties of the network, the ways in which content is delivered to our eyes and ears to harm people um, or to damage infrastructure. And again, it's something where it's like it's everywhere. It's totally interpenetrated throughout the system. The only option we have that sort of keeps the human race alive is to just cut off the Internet completely. Okay, so now we're out, as Brunton puts it, in space pirate territory. 
Some kind of crazy artificial intelligence trying to kill us all might be a common science fiction trope, but is also pretty unlikely. But this also brings us to the internet abandonment scenario that I, weirdly, find the most plausible. And that's scenario number five. A moral panic. Like something deeply cognitively dangerous starts to take shape on the network. Some kind of comprehensive social madness. A new religion, perhaps. Um, A new apocalyptic cult that spreads like wildfire through sort of human cognitive space and hops across language barriers and usage barriers. Um, we've, we've had an amazing cultural record of entire societies losing their collective minds. Something that we can envision as being akin to like the medieval children's crusade, for example, where like the entire childhood population of a fairly large swath of parts of Europe, uh, you know, goes to the Middle East to die on the way or be sold into slavery. Like there's, there's many different ways in which this could play out, but I, I'm a deep believer in the idea that we as humans are far more filled with latent psychopathology than we necessarily realize. And that might be a situation in which, like, you know, riding out of the distance to come save us come like, you know, the technology relinquishers, you know, the Amish and the Mennonites, the cranks and the refusenics and all the people who have in one way or another avoided this, who can uh, who can begin going around and for for the global social good shutting the system down. So if the very worst parts of the internet come together, they congeal into this global movement of evil and darkness. We might all decide that, you know what, this isn't worth it anymore. And as a woman who spends a lot of time on the internet, some days that feels really real to me. What I think is probably more likely is some combination of four and five and politicians. So not a singularity, not a giant evil internet cult, but instead a growing feeling that what we've created here on the internet isn't necessarily, obviously, a net social good. Combine that with politicians who don't really understand the internet, don't really know what's going on, and might see this as a possible threat to them, and you could perhaps imagine them deciding to just turn the whole thing off. It's unlikely. It's highly unlikely. But we're not in the business of likely scenarios here, so deal with it. And now we get to the part of the podcast you're all used to. What does the world look like without the internet? Well, it depends on when it happens. We're in this interesting moment where if something went direly wrong with the internet as a whole, we could walk it back without too much trouble. We'd still have a lot of the physical equipment for things like uh, broadcast television. Um, of course, for radio, for printing in general, you know, I mean, for, for making newspapers, which are a fantastic distribution system. And, and this is kind of the other important thing, a lot of the people who knew how to make those systems work, who understood them technically, are still alive. However, one thing, if we're being a little bit more speculative, is that we can envision this being significantly more catastrophic if we move the clock forward on when this event happens, another, let's say, 25, 30 years. It's important to note that two-thirds of the world doesn't have access to the Internet right now. So if this were to happen right now, we know exactly what it would look like to live without it because tons of people do. But that's changing. So if we're going to have that mass moral panic, now would actually be the best time. And if we gave up the Internet there would still be relics to our internet past. 
I like to think of it as a gift to future archaeologists. I mean, I think I think my favorite like visual fantasy is like the Stonehenge, you know, fantasy of like all all just like the idea that like aliens find us, you know, thousands of years from now. And they're like, what are all these like boxes with no windows that we left around? Right. There are server farms, you know. That's all for this future. Flash Forward is produced by me, Rosalia. The intro music is by Asura, and the outro music is by Hasselonian. The episode art is by Matt Lipchansky. If you want to suggest a future that we should take on, you can send us a note on Twitter, Facebook, or by email at info at flashforwardpod.com. I love hearing your ideas. I really do. And I try to respond to every email individually. It just sometimes takes me a little while, but I do really try. And if you think you've spotted one of the little references that I've hidden in this episode, you can email me there too. If you're right, I will send you something cool. And if you want to support the show, there are a few ways you can do that. We have a Patreon page where you can donate. We also have a support page on flashforwardpod.com where you can see other ways to give money. Um, But if money is not something you can give and you want to help the show, you can head to iTunes and leave us a nice review. Or just tell your friends about us. That really does help. I say it every episode, but it actually makes a huge difference. That's all for this future. Come back next month and we'll travel to a new one.